0: on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 92nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is letting the nothingness into your swing. I'm joined by Martin Wells. He is the author of No One Playing, The Essence of Mindfulness in Golf and in Life, the publisher is Mantra Books. It's an imprint of John Hunt Publishing. Martin has worked as a psychotherapist in the National Health Service for over 30 years, in addition to teaching mindfulness to other patients and staff. He lives in Bristol, England, and at age 70 is still a single-figure handicapped golfer. He's also played senior amateur and semi-professional soccer for nearly 20 years. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's start out with just a brief sense of what's the book about. Well, it's a
2: it's a, a, a story of a of a strange meeting between me and um, an an Asian gentleman that appears on the first tier of my golf course. I'm uh, I'm supposed to be playing with my brother, but he can't make it because he's ill. So uh, uh, this guy turns up and he he knows nothing about golf and asks me if he can can come round with me. And I'm sort of initially a bit um, unsure about this because I think I'm going to have to explain this rather complex game to him. But as it turns out, he teaches me about the inner game um, and that's the, the whole premise of the book, I guess.
1: Okay so the the Beatles went to India but you import India or someone from Asia as your companion here. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, okay. and and they structure of the book you might want to mention the the 18 holes and all.
2: Yes, thank you. There's well, there's there's 19 chapters, so 18 holes and the 19th hole and an epilogue. And each each one I guess contains um, a lesson about the game and about the inner game, um, and the first three or four chapters I started thirty years ago, and so it's only it's only been in lockdown in the last couple of years that I finished the last four or five chapters. And looking back, I couldn't really have, have written those any earlier than I did.
1: Okay, and the book is lovingly written, including some uh, delicious descriptions of how the ball. Uh, dribbles back away from the hole and so forth um having played enough golf to experience those agonies um i, I certainly appreciate it also lovely descriptions of the of the golf uh holes the course itself that you kind of constructed through a potpourri of uh, courses there on the west coast of england and so forth you want to just briefly describe that as well
2: yes yeah
1: i, I suppose
2: um i suppose that's been part of my love for golf is, is is the the terrain that we play on and particularly lynx golf the seaside courses that are so wild and and challenging to the golfer but also beautiful to the eye and uh, you know um yes as you say there's um there's quite a few of the courses are are based in Scotland. Each each of the 18 chapters is based on a on a hole, and there's even a prize at the end of the book if if anyone can guess them all.
1: Sure, uh, and and they did sound kind of mouth watering. I must say the the descriptions were lovely, and uh, although I'm not an avid golfer, I thought, geez, I really need to grab the clubs and uh, head on out to uh, the western coast of England. <laughs> Yeah. So, so in the intro, or actually on the back cover of the book, um, as part of your your bio intro, it mentions that there was a kind of an epiphany, a pivot moment in your life uh, regarding a, a talk you heard by a French psychiatrist. It seems that that's probably instrumental. I know you have a gentleman from you know Asia who's with you in the book, but it seems as if there's an alter ego, this French psychiatrist probably hanging over it in some fashion. So I want to give you a chance to elucidate.
2: Well, even even with the French psychiatrist, there's there's a, a tradition that goes back to India because his teacher's teacher uh, was Ramana Hamahashi from from India. So, so it's in that tradition anyway. But yes, what what happened was I um, about twenty years ago now went to a, a talk at the Royal College of Psychiatrists on meditation, basically mindfulness, and the um, t- the, the Talks in the morning were, you know, with PowerPoints and research figures and statistics and things. Interesting. But in the afternoon, this French psychiatrist stood up. He didn't have any notes or any PowerPoint or any research statistics. Um, And he just stood up and said, in order to be a psychiatrist, you must completely forget you are a psychiatrist. And then he didn't say anything else for probably two minutes, something like that. And then he said something similar to that. Uh, uh, two minutes later, like, like almost like ringing a bell. It was more of a meditation than a talk. And and um, and of course, that first statement and the implications of that first statement and the way he delivered the course was, was an extraordinary uh, experience for me, and, and one where. All the sort of striving and uh, searching for improvement, n- not just on, on the sports field, on the golf course, but, but in life as a psychotherapist and, and mindfulness teacher, uh, it, it, that all fell away uh, in, into, into just a sort of presence in a way of being alive w- without expectation or without goals, without direction. Um and it was a mixture of what he said and the way he said it. And and we've become colleagues and friends since then and and, and worked together and uh, it's been an amazing liberation for me.
1: Huh. No, that does sound like a, a wonderful uh delivery that he gave, um including the way he did it. I I mean I've spoken at conferences in what, 35 countries, but one I one I always remember is actually it was very near the White House, a grand old hotel. And the woman delivered the entire speech in a whisper, essentially. And at first I thought, have you lost your voice? And then I realized it was part of the the whole message, which was, she was trying to go unorthodox, but more intimate. And it just was a wonderfully reflective talk. And uh, by the time it was done, I was like, what a coup de grace. What a wonderful, you know, presentation. So let's stay with a few things then. Um, We're going to get into golf quite specifically a bit later on, but um, there's a, seems to be a pretty important comment. you said the zone finds you versus getting into the zone and if you can you know say a bit about that and then maybe you have a couple of other uh mindful tips uh that that follow from that that sure. statement sure
2: yes and um it's um
1: it's a it's a
2: paradoxical um Na- the, the paradoxical nature of of meditation, of meditation practice, and and actually, as you say, we'll come to that. Whether that is in golf and sport as well, but we we'd love to be able to find the zone. How do I get in the zone, in a sense? And that's 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 often asked. Or how do I how do I meditate to find peace? Uh, uh, and, and there's the paradox that, that often comes up in meditation and, and in these teachings is that we are peace. So there's, there's no way to peace. Peace is what we are. So in that sense, we can't find it. The only thing we can do is allow ourselves to be find, found by it in a sense, reminded of our, of our true home.
1: I, I, I like that. I, it makes me think of a, a different moment in, in college where the uh, student was trying to brown-nose the professor. We were discussing William Faulkner, and he says to the teacher with no understanding, obviously, of the concept, he says, does Faulkner have any advice on how we can get free will?
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. In in Chinese, it's called Wei Wu Wei. It's the, it's the practice of no practice. So uh, uh-huh. there's an obvious paradox in that. It's absurd yes. to, to the Western mind, to the binary mind. It's absurd. But but actually, there's a deep truth in it. Because as soon as you're trying, um, and, and an example again from Jean-Marc, uh, we, we, sometimes he will say, intention is in-tension. So if we have that intention, then it, it, it automatically brings a tenseness into the body and into the mind. And, of course, that's not the zone. So you you automatically step out of the zone with that that tenseness in the body.
1: Well, the the zone is a lovely thing when you can get there. I can remember, you know, all the best shots I've ever made in any sport uh, have all just happened, even one day where I think I made, honestly, about 16 of 18 shots in basketball, including one from half court, at the end of the game, I mean, it's just someone came over to me at the end and he put his finger against me and went Zzz, like I, w- I was on fire.
2: <laughs> a beautiful and, thing. And the challenge is, of course, you can't manufacture that much no. as much as you'd like to. And, and, and it's, in a sense, it's the essence of non-duality. We, we, we can't we can't sort of get there because we are there. We can only we can only know what we're not, so we can we can observe the workings of the mind and the tensions in in the body, so so that we as we observe, observe them, they fall away, and then of course, then the zone is more more available to us.
1: Sure. Now you mentioned the word absurdity a bit ago, and uh, one of the statements that uh, struck my attention in the book was well, you said, "Much of golf is absurd." Yes. Um, <laughs> can you can you say more please
2: <laughs> well um i'd i'd probably have to ask my wife for, to answer that because she, she thinks it's definitely absurd Yeah, okay. definitely absurd what the hell are you doing um and uh, and uh, it sort of relates to the previous thing we were talking about in a way because there is an absurdity in in us in us trying in in thinking that we can control something. I, I always, I always laugh when a sportsman, comes, sportsman or sportswoman comes onto the, the uh, interview afterwards and says, uh, "Yeah, I, I, I felt in control. I was in control." And and I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, "No, no, you weren't. That's, that's an illusion, and that's part of the absurdity of the game that we might imagine we're in." in control and we might imagine that ego has finally worked it out so that so that we've we're on top of this but any golfer knows that as soon as you start to uh, feel that egoic pride or, or sense of control then there's hubris you're going to fall flat on your face you're going to knock it in the lake or or hit an air shot or something um sure. Uh, and, and, and that's the game. And that's the the beauty of the game. It's a great teacher in itself.
1: Yeah, well, the the biggest lies in life, of course, are the ones we tell ourselves. <laughs> yes. um, you know, And, and we're both uh, former midfielders in, in yeah. soccer, what you would call football, of course. And uh, I think that was probably the sport I played best. And in, in part because I didn't have time to think. I was just in the flow. As a center midfielder, I thought of myself as a hawk, just circling and uh, the ball was the prey and uh, my goal was to seize it as often as possible on behalf of myself and my team um and it was that circling motion and just staying in in you know in motion you know the first principle of physics i believe is a body in motion tends to stay in motion and i tried to li- live that principle as best i could um so there was another comment just to take this a bit deeper cuz obviously you know you do work in you know psychology and uh, you also say those of us with deeper wounds to our self-esteem feel these poor shots in golf are confirmation of what we knew already so i mean this is you know this is not a light book it really does have significance to it and it does go to the inner game of golf and which takes us to the inner being of the person playing golf so can you say a bit about that that particular comment which got my attention yes um it's
2: um, it's a really important part part of the book, I think, and and I I, sp- I suppose in a way, the the book's a memoir. So uh, I know for me that that sport has uh, in transaction transactional analysis we call it counterscript. So it, 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 being good at sport, being sort of uh, admired by colleagues or or, or uh, you know as you say on a soccer pitch being part of something that that's successful or or, or works well has been an amazing sort of balm to uh, a, a much younger part of me that that was very lacking in confidence very shy very afraid of people and very sort of doubting of my um not my not my uh, a capacity to be loved because my parents were very loving and very supportive but but to really make an influence or, or or to have a voice um and i would i would right into my 20s and 30s i i would never say anything in a group uh or or only if i'd heard everyone else in the group speak so i knew i was sort of safe and there's a there's a there's a, there's a uh, ethnic background to that in the sense that my mother's German and I grew up in the 1950s in the UK and of course being German in this country at that, at that time would have been, I mean my mother's never really spoken about it but it would have been really, really difficult time for her and so I learned to hide that part of me which would have also felt to me, uh, and I know it did um, as, a, as a bad part of me, something, something to be ashamed of, to be guilty about.
1: Uh, well, I, I do know from the 1966 World Cup, uh, wasn't the uh, English crowd chanting to the Germans, we won the war? Something, something very much like that. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, and, and you can imagine me in the playground, age seven or eight or something. You know, being on the side of the the, the English army, not 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 saying yeah. that I'm, I'm German. <laughs> yes. So I learned uh, to hide that. You know, I learned to hide that and cover it. Really. So so sport became a, a great opportunity to do that.
1: Huh. Well, I can certainly relate in that my family moved to Italy for two years when I was a boy. My father worked for the company. I didn't know language at first, but I found myself in an Italian first grade in a fishing village. Uh, and I could only do the math unit. And honestly, it took me until graduate school before I to- I spoke in class. Uh, I got to Brown University. I said, I have to finally break through here. I have to talk in class. I very nearly didn't. I remember we finished the first, we were discussing a poem by uh, the British poet Andrew Marvell. And I hadn't said a word. I knew the poem intimately. I studied it at Oxford. And finally, I said, I don't think we've really discussed the poem, and uh, the teacher said, "What are you talking about?" And then I had to defend myself. So then I had to explain. So I finally, I finally did talk, indeed. But 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 staying with that, because you, you mean the book is autobiographical to a degree, and you mention your relationship to your father, and you, you had different politics. It sounded like, and quite possibly a different sensibility when it's all said and done. And, and you mentioned something that got my attention again, which is that you said men often have a hard time really being intimate with others and my, my mom would even take that comment and say this is a real typical conversation between guys this is as close as they get often uh, I will meet you at the I will meet you at the green yes, yes.
2: <laughs> absolutely
1: so so what, why is it that men seem to have this uh, this uh, being afraid of true intimacy of course they're, they're sometimes afraid of being afraid itself
2: yes no no absolutely um <sighs> I mean it, it's strongly cultural isn't it we can see it we can see it changing now and and if we stay in the in the cults, culture of sport for example there's a lot lot certainly in the UK and I think in the states as well there's a lot more sports people talking about their vulnerabilities about their depression and their anxiety yes. um, and certainly in, you know in our era when we were when we were playing sport and, and when we were young that sort of thing did not happen um, uh, and and of course, the message to us as young men would have would have been yeah don't don't show your feelings don't don't have your feelings uh certainly don't express them so so there there is a there is a cultural shift um and and it was a very powerful uh cultural uh influence when i was growing up and i went to an all boys school um most of the staff were male as well so it it was a a extraordinary sort of hypnosis in in into into how to be which which left out a whole range of possibilities in terms of feelings um uh, uh, tenderness intimacy grief um, which, of course, in a way, drew me into psychotherapy, where, where um, I, I learned a huge amount from my own therapy and my own group therapy and supervision. Um, you know, it was a great gift to me in, in that sense.
1: Sure. No, I think, you know, I've read George Orwell's uh, writings about going to boarding school and the the amount of tenderness allowed (laughs) and and showed uh, it was minuscule. Um, But but now we have Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and others who, you know, women obviously in both those cases, but, you know, leading the charge to bring these things in. But they're not the only ones. But uh, certainly there is that movement. So we have about ten minutes left. I want to move to the game of golf itself, specifically if we if we might for a bit. So we've just been discussing fear. So I, I can't resist going to the most infamous meltdown on a golf course ever that I know of, with which is uh, Van Velde's nineteen ninety nine Open Championship. As a, as a trained eye and as a psychotherapist, I imagine you've watched the video. You probably even watched it live as it was unfolding and maybe you want to choose something else so there's other meltdowns but boy i'd be interested from your on your perspective yes yeah i mean first i did
2: watch it live and and of course any golfer or most golfers would find that excruciating just just to watch the the meltdown and the unfolding and um and it is about golf but it but it, of course also as as a psychotherapist and a mindfulness teacher it's it's the power of the human mind and um and the the human mind has an enormous capacity both both for creativity and and, and development but but also for undermining itself um and um and that that process that we watch when when Van der Velde uh, just went into meltdown like that is 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 the mind at its worst in a sense un, unraveling and and completely um, leaving uh, the the person in doubt, but the body. Sort of sh- shaking with with a, the a lack of confidence, and, and so that all the things he's learned suddenly suddenly disappear.
1: And, and did he ever recover? Did he ever win any major
2: championships? I don't, I don't know that he did. I don't think he won a major. I th- I think he might have played in some tournaments and done okay.
1: Because Yana you know, Novodna, the the Czech tennis player, you know, had a famous meltdown at Wimbledon, but she came back and won it later, and she was a really a dear, dear person. I was so happy for her.
2: Yeah. It's great when people come back from that, isn't it? It's wonderful to see. Yeah. But it's, it's the power of the mind. And and I, just a quick example, I, I, I was doing a mindfulness group in our health service here. And this woman, a Scottish woman had been, um, she'd had psychotic depression, depression and anxiety for 20 years or so. And she'd been in a colleague's group, a mindfulness group. And I said to her, what what helped you? you know, what did you learn? And she said, Oh, that's easy. I know I'm not my thoughts. I now know I'm not my thoughts. And this was absolutely liberating to her because of course, you know, her thoughts had been, you know, as a depressive person, failure, you're useless. You're, you're a waste of space. And for her to realize that she's not her thoughts, um, absolutely liberating and the key to the book in a sense and and of course the the problem with the meltdowns is is we absolutely identify with the thoughts and the, and and they they've influencing us so we're we're not sitting back and thinking whoa i'm having a a thought of putting it in that in that river off the tea here and that and that's that's where the source of the meltdown comes.
1: Sure, or, or the totalizing, you know, I, I missed that shot and I'm a failure in life. Period. Exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, well it links you know, they, to your
2: previous question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean you the book has very early on, of course, that delicious quote from Bobby Jones. The length of a golf course is five and a half inches, the space between your ears. Uh, that's that's as good as that's as good as they come.
2: <laughs> it's so clear, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So I've gotta I've gotta ask you something. This will be a, a, a I suppose a tough question, but it's it's a multi it's a multiple guest question. So I happen to be a facial coder. That's my practice um in psychology. So I, I read expressions from the face. It goes back to uh Da Vinci and Charles Darwin. So one time I was invited uh by the women's golf coach at Arizona State, which is a perennial powerhouse in America for collegiate uh, sports particularly golf often and she arranged for i think it was three maybe four uh serious amateur golfers ones who entered you know tournaments paid fees uh performed reasonably well we all just met on the green and i spent the morning essentially crouched down reading their face faces as they as they made a variety of of puts and then of course we could naturally see how they performed So here here are your seven choices, because I'm going to be asking you which expression or which emotion expressed on their faces proved the most helpful and the most detrimental to being an effective putter. So the choices would be happiness, surprise, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, and contempt. Of those seven, which one do you think actually was most conducive to putting well, and which, least from our little mini experiment, seemed to be the the most uh, harmful? Uh,
2: I I would I would veer between. <laughs> Coping out here, aren't I? Between surprise and happiness, and um, and and anger would would and anger and fear would be would be the at the other end of the scale.
1: Okay, and. Ours was a limited sample, so uh, I, I will not defend this in a court of law. but But, I will tell you that actually, from our little experiment, anger, slight anger only, but slight anger, as in concentration almost, was actually the most effective. and that and that does correlate to some other work I did, which was was paid work, which was for the u s. Olympic diving team before they competed in rio. and And as I watched the interactions between the coach and the diver high on the platform, They had a little routine, at least most of them did, where they would exchange a a knowing smile between them, I suppose, to reaffirm their connection and a boost of confidence. I actually found it was detrimental to their diving, and the divers who instead showed that kind of purposeful, concentrated anger did the best, and they shifted their routine. They dropped that uh, before they headed to the Olympics. Um, So that's what I found. And the least effective, contempt. Uh the smirk, the the knowing smirk that I, I'm above I'm above you, this I, I of course will make the putt. The, the, I think almost the supposition that I'm in control. Because you, Yeah, because you're actually not in control. Um anyway, the, the the person was so intrigued. She she just wasn't willing to pay my fare, so I didn't take the offer, but uh there was a conference on golf. Analytics with the event being held at St. Andrews in Scotland. And I was invited to speak to show my results. But, uh, you know, since that wasn't really my, my calling in life and I was going to have to pay the fare, and I've been to Scotland before I, I passed, but I, I sometimes regret it actually because uh, I've not been on the course. And of course, it's very historic and wonderful and extremely daunting and all those things. So a couple other questions in golf here. We're we're near the end. So in tennis, it's often said that the seventh game of the set is really a crucial game because then you're up four three. And you're just nosing that much better to closing out the set on your behalf. In golf, given the structure of your book in eighteen holes, is there a point? I mean, because obviously in tennis, you'd say, well, you know, it's add in or add out or you know in the tiebreaker. But you know that seventh game can loom large. People believe. In golf, is there a hole? You know, out of the 18 holes, is there a hole that's kind of in some subtle way might be the harbinger of how this thing's going to go? I, I think,
2: I don't think, I don't think I generalize. I think, I think there's, um, there's probably different holes that, that symbolize different things. Like in, in, in the book, I, I sort of comment on the first hole. And how people set off on the first hole and maybe they hit two bad shots and then they, they define their whole round because of those two bad shots. Oh, it's not going to be my day or, sure. or how unlucky or whatever. So, so often the first hole, I think, can, can uh, be significant. And then, of course, in, in golf, particularly in Lynx golf, you've got the ninth, which is the turn. So in, in Lynx golf, you're normally playing along the coast one way and then back along the coast the other way. so it literally is a turn. so, uh, so it's a significant sort of halfway stage but also a psychological stage. So like you know will I, either will I hold it together or, or will will my fortunes change and, and will, will the zone find me in the next nine?
1: Okay, well, you know, as I said I, I have no talents in golf, uh, but uh, when I have played, I've found for myself about the twelfth hole really becomes the moment I have to dig deeper because now I've encountered enough frustrations uh, that uh, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna salvage anything, I, I have to dig dig a bit deeper and find some you know some whatever. Some inner tranquility that allows me to go on, uh, because there's usually not, in my case, been a lot of uh, positive signs.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it can it can catch you as well. I mean, ego is a big factor in this because because it, it can catch you. Like you can be playing well and there again is that thing i'm i'm playing well so the the theme of the book is 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 no one playing of course so it, as soon as yeah. we go i'm playing well then then there's there's a potential for trouble
1: sure so speaking of highs and lows and trouble uh, i i can't leave this interview without asking about tiger woods that'll be my last question and any observations if if tiger was your patient what would you what would you say to him
2: <laughs> well teach me how to swing probably um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, that's been a whole fascinating process hasn't it what what a what, i mean what an astounding golfer and 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 again sort of classic classically um we've got we've got hubris you know so we've got we've got the fall from grace Yes. Um, uh, which which is just, just extraordinary to to watch in, in any sport or in any situation really, um, and and what I would say is that he, he he's come back from that, um, and, and it looks like it's it's in, impacted him deeply, um, and and in a sense that's the design of our fall from grace. Is is to realise our humility and still keep the qualities that, that that we have in life or in golf or or, or whatever. And I think he's done a, a great job with that. But it's extraordinary watching people um, come to earth uh, in that way and, and then watching how they how they um, survive it, and how they come through it. And he's done yeah. he's done well. He's done well with that. What an amazing. Sure.
1: Journey, yeah, no, no. You, you, you know, you can read the Greek, you know, heroic tragedies, or you can look at Tiger Woods' life. But uh, it, it is, it is, it has been an epic journey. That's absolutely true. So we we've reached the end of our particular journey, Martin. Um, so this, uh, that, I do want to thank you for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number ninety-two, letting the nothingness into your swing. My guest, Martin Wells, he's the author of. Indeed, no one playing the essence of mindfulness in golf and in life. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or a review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website and search by typing in the show's name. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one actually from a Buddhist nun. I know nothing else about Uh, the person's name, Pima Shadron, who this person said, nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. I found that intriguing. Until next time, take care and be well.